Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It went viral. It was everywhere. I don't even remember being like there was a Muslim doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? If not me, who? Why can't I do it? This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Can you describe the first time you heard yourself on the radio? I was in a taxi. Okay, tell me this one. <laughs> First time I heard myself on the radio, I was in a taxi with my friend Qais, and I remember him saying, I heard the song everywhere today. And I was like, I still haven't heard it yet. It had been out for two days. He's like, I've been hearing it everywhere. We get in this cab, and it's on the radio. And we look at each other, and we're like, wow, it's actually happened. But yeah, we hear our stuff on the radio now all the time. It's kind of insane. And you hear it in places like people are like, I'm in Finland, I heard you. I'm in Indonesia, I'm listening to you. I'm in here... I remember sitting in the cab just being completely shocked and I got to share that with a friend. Once again, going back to that relational aspect, you know, things are meant to be shared and music is the way we share. This is Majid Al-Maskati speaking to Hiba Fisher. The song he's talking about here is one you've almost certainly heard on the radio. It was so big when it came out and it still plays all over the world. It's called Hold On, We're Going Home. Just hold on, we're going home. Bum, bum, bum. It's the 2013 chart-topping hit single by Drake from his Nothing Was The Same album. I know you know it. Majid is half of the Toronto-based R&B music duo Majid Jordan. Fresh out of college, he and his partner Jordan Ullman shot to fame when they produced a demo for what would soon become one of the most successful breakthrough tracks on the album. They were signed under one of Drake's music labels, OVO Sound, and have been creating music together ever since. I'm Dana Balutz, and you're listening to El Empire. Hiba and Majid actually go way back, back to their school days in Bahrain, where they both grew up. And so it's kind of a big deal when a kid from your hometown, a small Gulf island nonetheless, um, is suddenly featured on a Drake track. Dude, congratulations, Entayani. I, I like properly squealed when uh, Hold On, we're, we're Going Home came out. Like, uh, we're, we're all so, so proud of you, really. Like, I'm actually at the studio where we made it. This is where, where, we, uh, where Drake worked on the song. Oh, my God. <laughs> at the very place. Now, years later, doing our own album. That's amazing. 
I can't I can't wait to hear all about it. Majid's story is kind of that success story that your parents always warn you not to dream about because what are the odds? And you'll hear in his conversation with Hiba just how humble he is about his experience and how his music career has helped shape his philosophy on life. But first, they start off with a nod to a special multicultural power they both share. You said you're Bahraini side. Are you half and half? Yeah, so I used to say I'm half Bahraini, half. My mother's Irish, Scottish. I used to say I'm half, half, but I really think I'm 100% both because I grew up in both cultures and I grew up speaking both languages and uh, going to visit my mother's side of the family. And my mother's been living in Bahrain since the 80s. So that's that's where she still is today. And I consider her Bahraini as well. Um, so yeah, I, I have both cultures and I got to experience the best of both worlds. You know, I'm half and half too. So my mother's Egyptian and my dad's American. And I think uh, secretly, not secretly, I've said this before, but I think we're the answer to world peace because you really <laughs> understand multicultures. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like sometimes in the house we needed world peace to resolve some issues, you know. it's it's, <laughs> it's uh, No, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I think it speaks to the connectedness of all of us as people. There are so many values that we share and so many differences that are important between our cultures that, are, are important to acknowledge, you know, it's, it's nice that my mother likes to celebrate certain things and my father likes to celebrate other things and we can all celebrate one another together. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, it's a beautiful thing when worlds come together. hundred percent. Um, so d- describe to me your childhood growing up in Bahrain. Do you have any siblings? I have two younger sisters, uh, Nadia and Hannah. I'm the eldest, you know, usually in that part of the world, the older brother is kind of like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you? But I kind of, you know, I, I I think my sisters probably had to worry about me more than I had to worry about them. And, uh, you know, we're very close. And I think just the way we, we were brought up was to be very relational. You know, we, we take care of one another. We look out for each other. Uh, and my sisters can come to me for anything. And I know I can go to them for anything. So I'm very lucky. They have to look out more for you. Why, why do you, or at least growing up, why do you say that? I think like I had sort of an openness. I didn't really care if, you know, music or art wasn't a legitimate way of life. I I wanted to discover something new. And I thought art for me was the way forward because it, it allowed self-expression. It allowed yourself to experiment and fail and, and be okay with that because you knew you were learning at the same time. And so I think my sisters, maybe they they just worried about me. I grew up in a very traditional environment, I would say. We had to see my grandmother every Friday. <laughs> you know, my parents were really strict about school and getting grades, my father especially. Uh, he's kind of like, you know, if you don't do well at this, you're not going to get to this and you're not going to do that. And so-and-so's son has done this and so-and-so's <laughs> this and this universe, you know. So I feel like since, it, since I was young, I kind of was auditioning for, for love or acceptance. I I don't think it was an intentional thing, but it's just like our parents wanted us to be able to compete globally and be able to, if we so wish, go wherever our heart was taking us. Growing up, I played a lot of sports. That was my first dream. I didn't really discover music till later. It was kind of hard to, to learn music in Bahrain. There weren't that many schools and we didn't have music class really in, I went to Bayan school. Um, it ended in like grade five. So I didn't rediscover music until I was much older, but 
you know, in terms of my family life, it was like very close, family oriented, take care of the, your elders, take care of your family, be a good son, don't embarrass us, you know, all those things. We heard that your aunt uh, told you uh, that when you were a baby, you used to sing um, by Ace of Bass, All She Wants. Yeah, my, my mom's sister. Yeah. And you said, you know, music wasn't as accessible. Or, you know, classes ended at grade five uh, growing up. But what role did music play? Such a big role. Like my, my parents always used to listen to music. I believe like my father was a performer that never got the chance to be a performer. He kind of was the head of the house providing for the family. What kind of performer? Did he sing? He doesn't sing, but he's very funny. He's very engaging. He has charisma and he can he can have a he can have a conversation with anybody and he's he's just like walks into a room and you feel his presence. So I think being around that at a young age definitely opened my eyes, you know, and I was like, oh that seeing how he moved through the world was inspiring to me. But beyond that, like my mom would always be playing music. She loved Prince. She loved Tracy Chapman, uh, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, all of these artists. And so I, would, I was listening to those people as a child, but also my uncles on my father's side collected records. My uncle Mazen was a DJ. I would say he's he's one of the pioneers of like the house music scene in Bahrain. Um, yeah, my other uncle, Adil, he uh, collects vinyl records and goes all around the world, crate digging, and he has a room just dedicated to listening to music. He gets all of our vinyls when we release them. I make sure he gets them first. Um, and they love, they really, really love music. How how did that manifest as you got older? Is it like, did you do talent shows at Bayan? Did you, it wasn't really um, singing, to be honest. It was more like acting and comedy. I always was trying to have fun in school because I thought school was really challenging and static. Sorry, not sta stagnant. It was like I was there from kindergarten all the way through grade 12. And it was like all the same teachers and all the same people and the same <laughs> hallway. I, my, I probably drove my parents crazy. I was like, I need something new. Like, it just feels like I'm doing the same thing every single day. So singing came into the picture when I moved to Canada. So oh, I you're kidding. That late? Yeah, it really took off. So what happened was I moved to Canada and I moved to a college called Victoria College, which is at University of Toronto. And it's really close to the music uh, faculty. So everyone who lived around me, my roommate, were all in the music program. So I learned a couple chords from my friend, shout out to Mohamed Zainal in Bahrain, because they were like a bunch of guys that used to play flamenco guitar in Bahrain. And I just picked it up, but it was like right as I was leaving the country. So I get there with the few chords that I know, and I start borrowing my roommate's guitar for periods of time. And slowly and slowly, I start taking the guitar for longer and longer. And then he forgets I even have the guitar. And I start learning how to play. And I start writing birthday songs for people. So I start writing birthday songs for friends as a joke. It came from like, you know, comedy kind of making people laugh. Wait, when you say writing a birthday song, so it's more than just like happy birthday to you, like what, what would it be? No, it would be like, let's say my friend Mikey, it's his, you know, 18th or 19th birthday at that time. I'm like, yeah, so Mikey, it's your birthday, so-and-so. I know you like so-and-so. You guys should have some fun. <laughs> so it would be like make a whole story, kind of like make everyone laugh. And I did that and I wrote 10. And people were like, yo, you literally wrote an album of birthday songs. You should try and do an open mic. So I did an open mic at this bar called The Cat's Eye uh, at Victoria College. And it went really well. I did an original song. 
everyone loved it. And I was like, this is really rewarding. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously and try writing my own stuff. I started a MySpace page back in the day and I put five, yep, five yep. songs up on the MySpace. <laughs> and so I just put those online and school got so intense that I never pursued anything after I had my MySpace. I was like, look, this is my music. If anyone feels it, they can find it there. I can send it to them. And so I stopped doing music after my pretty much my second year. What did you study in university? I, I was boring. I studied finance and economics and <laughs> commerce, they called it. Commerce. It's like accounting, marketing, all these things. And what, what was your plan like before music became a thing, uh, which I guess was in your last year of school? Like, what was your life plan? You'd move back to Bahrain and work for PwC or like what was uh, the thinking? No, no way. Like, I knew... I knew I was like defrauding my family. I just, I knew I wasn't going to do any of those things. I just needed a degree and I just needed time to figure out where I was going to be and what I wanted to do. So I, w I didn't really have a plan. My plan was like finish school and then figure something out. You met Jordan, uh, your partner, Jordan Ullman, Jordan Ullman in 2011. Um, talk to me about how you guys met. What was the first interaction like? I was, it was my 21st birthday. It was a surprise birthday. And I had to sneak him into the bar that the birthday was at because uh, <laughs> he was only 17. He's three years younger than I am. Oh, wow. Okay, uh, he okay. was only 18 at the time, I think. And so I get him in and we start talking. And he's like, yeah, so I make music. I heard you sing. He knew a friend of mine. We both had a mutual friend. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'd love to make something before I leave. And this is when I'm telling you just before I was mm. about to graduate. And it just lined up so perfectly that I ran into him on the street a few months later. And I was like, yo, we never actually worked together. He's like, come by my, my dorm and, and like, let's make something. And we ended up making two songs that day. Chillpad Deluxe and Hold Tight. Those were our first two songs that we ever made. So, so Jordan invites you over, and he's got like a like a recording setup in his in his dorm room. Um, and then, and then, like I don't know how a song gets made. It's different every time. I think in the initial stages, it's very easy to follow your intuition because. It's like you've been waiting your whole life to express yourself musically, melodically. So whatever whatever comes out of you, it's almost completely authentically you. Uh, it is. It's just by nature of it. It's the first time you're doing it and you're hearing it back and that's how it goes. But after years and years of doing it, you have to also still protect that essence. Don't take it too seriously or like, oh, should it be this or this or that? Like, Don't hinder, I guess, the flow of it. And I think we learned that early with each other and we have nurtured it and also protected it over all this time. And that's that's still how we work. Um, for, for somebody who doesn't know your music together, so you sing and play guitar and then what does Jordan do? Yeah, Jordan does everything. He like puts the albums together, uh, produces, records, sets up the studio. And he's also, um, I would say... A driving force more so than just what he does he he has a an energy to him that's always driving towards creation and i think that's that encourages me also to to do the same 
And it's it's amazing because when you're in a partnership, any partnership, there's no finish line apart from the time you cross it at the same time together. It's not like, oh, like I'm doing this and then we I'm gonna convince it's like we have to move and be in communication all the time. It's it's a really good uh, way to learn how to be in a partnership with anybody. Okay, so you guys produced uh, After Hours, which was your first mixtape, and there were like four or five songs on that. Is that right? I think seven songs, seven or eight. It was 2011, 2012. And as you know, they call it the Arab Spring, but there was a lot of madness going on in our part of the world. I was feeling so tense about it because I was away from home at that point for four, almost five years. And I just felt so distant from everybody. And I was just hearing the worst stories and I was feeling so sad all the time. And I was like, I need something that makes me happy. What makes me happy? Making music makes me happy. And Jordan was like, oh man, I I can hear you're going through a tough time. Like, let's do something. Let's make a project. And we made After Hours, uh, our first mixtape under the name Good People, out of his dorm room at U of T and his parents' basement. And then we put that out. And then I flew back to Bahrain right after I finished school. And we burned a CD just before I left that found its way to Drake's producer. And he called me and said, I want you to come back to Toronto. I didn't even know you were from Toronto. Somehow it got in the hands of uh, of Forty, who's Drake's producer. How 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 does this happen? So Jordan burnt a CD, gave me one, and he had one, and he burnt a third CD, and he gave that CD to uh, someone who's now a friend of ours called Anandan, uh, who found out that we had made this project. Who is good friends, a childhood friend of Forty's, and he listened to the project, loved it gave it to 40 and 40 was like, ah, I'm not sure. Ended up cleaning his house to the project and was like, yo, these guys are sick. Give me their information. And then emailed me. And then he's told me like, we have a plan to start this record label, OVO Sound. I said, I'm in Bahrain. I don't have status in Canada. He's like, don't worry. I'll fly you back to Canada. He's, he basically sponsored me, got me an apartment. Oh my God. 40 is someone who is so dedicated. If he really cares about something or cares about a person, he will do everything he can to help them out. So you're you're in Bahrain, you have this email exchange with with 40. Um and then like what do you tell your parents? Hey, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go back to Toronto to be a full-time musician. Like what did they say? They looked him up and my dad was like this is a serious individual, go try it. That was it was that simple because I had done everything he'd asked already. You you excelled at school. You studied the like, you know, serious stuff. I did this stuff. And then he was kind of like, well, don't just sit at our house and eat our food. Go (laughs) get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Go get a job. This guy looks like he can give you a job. And what was the offer? Like, come, I'll get you set up. And then like every day you're making music with us or like what he, was he, the... He, I remember he got me a laptop and he got me uh, a little microphone and he was like, just start writing song ideas and making demos. And then he's like, okay, we're working on an album right now. I'd love for you to help or contribute in any way. It's It was very um, inclusive, you know? He was like always bringing us into a musical world that was so brand new and amazing, but in a very supportive way. Yeah, I just started making demos and then, you know, getting more proficient at making songs, giving him ideas and then him loving certain ideas, not really liking others. And the ones that stuck ended up 
being listened to by everyone in the team. It's Forty, it's Oliver, it's Drake. They have other producers that they work with, like Boy Wanda, Mr. Morgan, who's the GM of our label. They all have an input and opinions on the music, and they loved uh, what was a demo for Hold On, We're Going Home. And it ended up becoming like a moment for, for that album. I mean, is this common, this idea of like sponsoring talent and like nurturing them from the beginning? Or was this pretty exceptional? Uh, I don't know if anyone has like taken an artist, not even a signed artist, but taken someone and sponsored them and given them like a work visa. Because in a record, like we hadn't even signed the record deal at that point. I, I don't know if that happens all the time. I really don't. And I I find that that's a big barrier to why a lot more artists can't cross over to this side of the world. It's I'm like sure. immigration mm. is so difficult and it's so, there's so much talent where we're from. And what's really exciting about now is that there is a hunger and a desire to nurture that talent. It's an exciting time. And I, I just, I want to be back in Bahrain. I want to start you know, we have dreams and, and me and Jordan talk all the time. I want to start a music program. I want kids to be able to have access to those tools to express themselves or make the kind of music that they feel like needs to be made that they can't find anywhere else in the world. How did that translate to a conversation with Drake? Like at this point, had you met him or was he just somebody who I, heard? I met okay. him. I met him the day I met 40. And it was at this place. Oh, called, no way. It was at this place called Noble Studios. I show up at the studio. I go upstairs. 40 rolls in. Me and Jordan meet him. Crazy. He's like, yeah, we're starting a record label, this, this, that. And I would love to hear some stuff you guys made. So we, we move to the studio room. We're playing stuff. Then someone buzzes in and Drake enters the room. And that's that's where we met. And uh, Forty told me after after we left and played the stuff, he like went to him and he said, we got to sign this guy. There's a lot of trust that goes into these musical relationships because it takes a lot of time. Even the way that they worked with each other, the way Forty and Drake um, can rely on one another to deliver what it is they need to bring to the table, you know? And I think for a producer to sit down with what Jordan does, to sit down and mix and arrange a song and get it to its final place, they have to really be dedicated to the project. And I, as a vocalist or singer, whatever, I trust him to see that time through and he delivers literally every time. And Forty and Drake are very much the same. And I think what people need to know is if you're going to go into any sort of journey, and I think we know this just culturally, is that it takes a village all the time. You need a lot of help. What um, what was it like meeting when Drake walked in? I mean, did you flip out? Cause, like- it, was, it was surreal. You know, to to be on a plane less than 24 hours ago and then to be in a room with, right now he's the biggest artist in the world, but at that time he was one of the biggest artists in the world as well. And I I remember sitting down with like my friends in Bahrain and telling them, so I'm going to (laughs) go to Toronto to make music. I don't know exactly how to describe what I'm going to do. And then you're in a room and you're standing there with these superstars, you know, Forty and Drake and... They're just speaking to you, human level, and they're like, yeah, we're working on this, this, and that. They play you some incredible music, and they're just like, yeah, so we'll see you soon. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll see you soon. This is life now. (laughs) This is life now. And I think that's a good attitude to have is that 
this is life you know these 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 wonderful things happen and you come into contact with incredible people it could be you know someone that's a musical giant but it could also be someone who's like still starting their journey like me and jordan like i got to meet jordan it's the same kind of feeling you know it's it's just there's like a, a child in everybody that gets to that moment where they realize they've lived a dream Tell me about the inspiration for the for making the song Hold On We're Going Home. And this song is like a massive, massive hit. And it ended up, it was uh, charting number four on like the US Billboard charts. It was like number one in a gazillion different countries. And it was awesome. Did you just like catapult to fame? Like what was what was the aftermath of that for you as, as Majid? I mean, like we're not we're not famous in the sense that like people are going to stop us on the street and are you that but the, it's it's like a if you know you know basis you know after all these years because that happened many years ago we went on two world tours since then we put out more projects so you can see how things shift over time some people don't know where two people some people don't know how i look but they know the music like i've met so many people who are like oh so what do you do i'm like yeah we're i'm part of this group called Maja jordan they're like you're Maja Jordan. Oh my God. I love this and this song and this and that. So I, I enjoy the fact that people discover the music first. It's not about being super cool or being super massive. It's about, I think being the, someone that makes music that can be the soundtrack to some, to moments in people's lives that can uplift them or, or make them feel something or be thought provoking, inspiring. Give it up for my brother Jordan one time. What was the first time you did a, a huge performance? Uh, what, was that for Hold On, We're Going Home? I remember doing Coachella, 2017, I believe. Oh my goodness. How are you feeling tonight? It's such an honor to be here. So many beautiful faces. So I remember doing that and understanding what Coachella meant because I had only heard about it you know it's like a myth or a legend and people are like yeah Coachella this this that but when you go and see the scale of it and you perform there and you see Bahraini flags in the audience my oldest friend my oldest friend in the world flew out to see me at that show and I remember seeing him in the crowd halfway through the set and I was just like I couldn't believe it you know and that I'll never forget that day in 2018, you guys performed in Bahrain for the first time, right? You did a concert in Bahrain. Yeah, we did. That first show was like an eye-opening experience to how supportive uh, our fans are over there, how inspiring what we're doing is to them. And so it's a, it was a seated venue. And, you know, we, we make music that's danceable music. And I was just like, everybody get up. <laughs> and I, I remember like the organ the organizers are like, what do you mean get up? They should be standing. They have assigned seats. But I told everyone to come down to the stage. So all these kids rushed out of the stage. And this one kid, he like touched my shoe. And he, he <laughs> and he like, he lifted his hand up and he was like, <gasps> like this. And then all the kids around him were like, oh my God. Like, <sighs> and like we did the final song. We walked off. Anyway, the show ends. My mom's like, Majid, come back here. I'm like, what? She's only gone and gotten like 300 fans from outside to come and meet me. So I, I meet like 
300 people. I'm like, all right, thank you so much. And we leave. But it was crazy. And it was a different age demographic because it was an all ages show in Bahrain. When we tour in the States or Europe, it's like 19, 21 plus. So uh, it was cool to see a younger generation just being so receptive to it. And then my whole family was there. It was amazing. You've accomplished so much. And now it's looking ahead at like, okay, what else drives me? Like I've done, I've done this stuff. We've lived so many dreams. We've gone on world tours. We played Coachella. We've, we've, you know, we've had uh, top 10 singles. We've worked with amazing, incredible big artists written for a lot of people. But what are we doing now for ourselves? Now we're recording in the studio where we made Hold On. We're going home with 40 and Drake, uh, working on our own stuff. We're going to go back to Bahrain and record there too because it's important for me to feel like that is a part of my musical journey. The place that raised me, the place that informed so much of who I am. I want to make sure that I give myself time to make art there as well. What's important to me is that I continue to make music that inspires me and makes me feel something that I can share with the world. What's important to me is to be around my loved ones. What's important to me is to always encourage people to, uh, you know, go after what it is they truly dream of. It's not easy, but I want to be a source of encouragement for that. And I want to let people know that, okay, if I can give you any lessons from my failures or my successes, this is what I've learned. And here you go. Um, I don't want to pry too much into your love life, but do you ever serenade like crushes or like your girlfriends? All the time. How do you think I started making music? (laughs) 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 It's love. It's a love language. I think also like music is a, it's a way to test out fantasies as well. You know what I mean? It's like to create worlds out of maybe like, maybe like it's, 10% true but then you can like follow this feeling and it's like where would it have gone if that was the case I really like that I think that's a beautiful note to end on Majid thank you so so much for your time for for your music that decorates so much of my life we really aspire that people who listen to this will um, will be like oh I, I can do that This episode was produced by Ban Barqawi, Finbar Anderson, and Hajar al-Da'as. It was edited by Hiba Sharif and hosted by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking was by Tamara Jabouri and sound design and mixing by Yusuf Duwazu. Batul Khalifa is our operations manager and El Empire is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. A massive thanks to Majid al-Muskati for sharing his story with us and for reviving hope in the creatives in this world. Please leave us a review if you enjoyed the interview. It helps others discover the show too. And head to YouTube and search for El Empire to watch the full uncut interview of this episode, as well as others from this season. Thank you all so much for listening and take care.